Hello, my friends. Welcome to The Greg Crino Show. Welcome to the show, everyone. You know how it goes. We talk to experts and people with unique experiences so we can learn, become better critical thinkers, gain a deeper understanding of the world, and have some fun in the process. And remember, your five-point checklist. I give this out every show, so rate, comment, subscribe, email, and share. So go to your podcast app, give me a five-star rating, and friendly comment. Then go to gregcarino.com, scroll to the bottom of the homepage, input your email, sign up for my newsletter. I'll have those coming out about once a month. And then email your friends, tell them to do the same. We want to grow this audience and reach as many people as possible. Finally, if you follow the show page on Facebook and Instagram, please share those episode announcements with your friends. And then I also have a personal LinkedIn page. So I'll do show announcements there and share those with your friends as well. So rate, comment, subscribe, email, and share. And last, if you want to email me, email me at gregcrinoshow at gmail.com. In today's episode, we have Dr. Elver Kosovich. Elver was born in Bosnia. He was a refugee of the Bosnian War. And when he got to the United States, he got his doctorate in electrical engineering. He became an expert in neuroscience. He also went to law school and taught at Yale. The man's done a ton of things, extremely smart, gained a lot of wisdom over the years. And now he has started a company called UpEnd. And their mission is to convey that wisdom as well as ancient wisdom to help people improve their lives. They can be reached at upend.com. And so here he is, Dr. Elver Kosovich. I actually have a a Yugoslav background. My great-grandfather, oh. yeah, my great-grandfather came from Montenegro. So My father and grandfather and all are from Montenegro also. So Oh, wow, okay. I'm sure if we keep going, we'll find out that we're cousins. Yeah, I know. I, well, it's it's funny. So it's the VIC at the end. So my, I actually have two last names, but my original gr- great grandfather's last name and, and my father is um, is Krivokapic. And oh, yeah, so, sure. Yeah, is that a common name out there? It sounds like it, it is. It's not hugely common, but it's it's not an unusual name at all. It okay. means uh, in the direct translation, it means uh, um, a hat. That's on your head kind of sideways. <laughs> that's Kappa, what it means hat. So Krivo Kapic means like this. You wear your hat on the side, like a no like a way. French beret. Yeah, Krivo Kapic. It's a last name. That's de- Is it derived from that or is it just happened to be that? Those are the words. That's what it means. Krivo Kapic. It probably meant like it was uh, some kind of a uh, um, an officer in, in one of the armies that was coming through. Oh, wow. So maybe like in the Turkish army where, you know, the soldiers wore hats like this and, you know, the other officers wore it on the side. Oh, like man. A beret. I'm going to have to start wearing my hat to the side now. Now I've got a reason. There you go. Yeah. So I have that last name. It's, it's Krino Krivokapic, but my, my dad has it as well. My grandfather. I don't know why they changed it from Krivokapic to Krino, K-R-I-N-O. Like, would you have any insight on that? I don't know where those, those two no. words seem very different to me. Krino, I don't know anything. I, that doesn't mean anything to me. Yeah. In Bosnia, at least, or I mean, Montenegro and, and Serbian, Croatian, and Bosnia are all the same language, basically. Yeah, yeah. Maybe it was. I, I've heard it's part of a Greek. It means something in Greek. So maybe there was some Greek influence in the family a long time ago, or maybe my. I think it was my grandfather that actually changed it to Krino. 
And you know, he he died like twenty. Yeah, there might sound. Yeah, I would know about that. I just know yeah. Kibokovich. There's no question. It's a yeah. Montenegrin slash Bosnian name. Yeah, oh, that's that's great. I I talked to very few people from that area, and so this is a real a real treat for me. So let's talk about just the beginning. So you're a Bosnian refugee as well. So did you grow you? So you grew up there, and then you left because of the war. Can you kind of go into that part of your life? Sure. Um, so the, my full name is actually pronounced here in, in the States. We pronounce it Elvor Kozovic. Uh, in Bosnia, we would say Elvir Chaushevich uh, would be uh, the full name. There's a little squigglies yeah. that I lost at Ellis Island, like so many other people lost, you know, uh, lost their names. But I came to the States as a foreign exchange student uh, in 1990. And, and it was, there was no mention, you know, there was no indication there would be some war in Bosnia or anything like that. So I was a high school you know, senior um, here in the States. I went back home for the summer, came back for college here. Uh, and then in my freshman year of college, uh, the war started, you know, the, the second semester. So I kind of got, I was a refugee by by happenstance. What was that movie from Tom Hanks, um, Terminal? Where like oh. you present your passport and said, I'm sorry, sir, your country doesn't exist. Well, that's that's what it was with Yugoslavia. Like the country disappeared. Uh, and the war started, but my mom and my brother and my dad got caught and, you know, the whole family, uh, in the war. And it was, um, it literally started overnight. It was like September 10th or September 11th, right. Or January 5th, January 6th. It was like that, uh, completely unexpected. There was some rumor and some talk, but nothing that you would seriously think was going to happen. Uh, but then it did. Wow. So what were the, what were the, can you kind of briefly describe the the belligerence during the, the Bosnian conflict. I know that it was due to the breakup of Yugoslavia and there was some dispute about who was going to govern the Bosnian area. Cause I think you have th- what, three major ethnicities that live in that area of the, with the Bosnians, the Serbs, the Croats, was that kind of how everything was arranged and were those the, the big belligerence? Uh, yeah, the, I don't know, belligerence is a loaded word, but okay. uh, there were, there were basically people who were nationalists and people who were not nationalists. Uh, so the nationalists on the, on the three sides, uh, you know, there were the, the Bosnian Muslims and then the, the Bosnian Serbs and the Bosnian Croats. And, and then you had on either side of Bosnia, Bosnia is a heart-shaped country, kind of right in the middle of Europe. And on either side, you have Croatia and you have Serbia. And it was the, the Bosnian, some of the Bosnian Serbs that were supported by Serbia, that's really who attacked uh, first. And at that time, uh, if you remember, uh, Serbia had a president, Yugoslavia had a president called Milosevic, Slobodan Milosevic. And he was, uh, you know, he was a despot kind of guy. He slowly consolidated power, a lot of like what we see right now in politics, you know, in Europe, uh, in various countries. So he slowly consolidated power, consolidated the military, you know, put his people into the Supreme Court and things like that. Uh, and then Yugoslavia had six states, like in the U.S. we have 50. We had six in Yugoslavia. And then one broke off. Slovenia broke off. No problem. Croatia tried to break off and there was there was fighting. And when then Bosnia tried to break off, that's when the real fighting started mm. uh, there. And, you know, the, the unfortunate thing is that the U.N. put uh, a weapons embargo. So they, they said they wanted to, like, freeze the situation, with the difference being that the Bosnians were completely unarmed. And Serbia, the country, inherited all of the uh, military weapons, uh, you know, airplanes, everything else from the Yugoslav National Army, which is one of the biggest armies in Europe uh, before uh, before the war. 
So that was kind of an uneven uh, advantage. And then it was just a series of, of, of uh, horror uh, events, you know, and, and failures of the international community that made the war drag out for, for about four years uh, altogether. So Bosnia is a country, small country, four million people. Uh, a million people left the country, so a quarter of the population, and then about 200,000 were killed. And then, of course, everybody knows about Srebrenica and the genocide and uh, and all of that. It's it's uh, it's very ugly, very traumatic. Um, yeah. Traumatic for those who were here and traumatic especially for those who were there. No, I remember my my dad talking about, not, not necessarily what happened in, 1990, in, in the 1990s, but well before that. There were still some disputes between Croatians and Serbians. There's always been, I guess, disputes in that area. It's sort of like the the meeting of the, you know, the the well, not really the Middle East, but it's sort of like a border of two major cultures, Europe and you know Asia. And even back then, there was disputes here. Like people who were Croatian had Croatian families here, and people who had Serbian families here. They kind of had to like talk to each other. Hey, are we okay here? You know, we're all Americans, but we have these family ties back home. Like, are we okay? And and but it really, it really did. It really affected people all across the world, and it, it surprises me. Like my 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 attachments today, I, I'm well removed. I look at myself as 100% American, even though my background is is Montenegrin. Um, it doesn't really affect me, but it does for a lot of people. Um, what was the culture like leading up to the war? Were those divisions still pretty harsh back then? And was I think it was Tito? Was he kind of keeping the lid on it? No, it wasn't. I mean, I was there in live, in living color, right? I lived there for 17 years and I wasn't yeah. an adult, but I wasn't a little kid either. So I, I went to high school and I traveled all over Yugoslavia. Um, you know, we, we didn't really think just like here, you don't really think about borders, right? So if you grew up in Illinois, mm. you not you consider yourself an America, not somebody from Illinois, right? So if you go to Missouri across the bridge, you just, you just go to Missouri. I mean, it's, it's like, it's not a big deal. So it was like that back home. Um, one thing that uh, Tito established is we had the conscript army. So everybody at 18 had to go for a year and serve. And one of the things they did that was pretty clever um, is you couldn't serve in your um, state. So you would have to serve in a different state for 90% of the uh, conscripts. So I think that really helped um, spread this idea. We call the brotherhood and unity. Um, uh, that you know there were always the nationalist elements. Uh, remember, in World War II, the national a lot of the nationalist elements on the Croatian side and the Serbian side they were aligned with the Nazis, uh, and you know they ran concentration camps and and all of this. And you know at one point there's this famous letter where the SS you know the Schutzstaffel had to send a letter to the Croatian president at the time to say to cool it on the concentration camps because uh, they were you know of course going after the Jews in the Holocaust, but also they were. In Croatia, they were imprisoning and, and, and torturing and killing Serbs uh, in World War II, as well as Roma and anybody else they didn't like uh, like that. So it was it was a brutal World War II was really brutal. And the partisans won and the partisans won on this uh, idea of brotherhood and unity and, you know, kind of everybody stick together. We're stronger because we're the same people, same language, same everything else. Uh, that nationalism didn't get extinguished. Uh, unfortunately, so it would pop up its head every once in a while, but it just wasn't in the in the in the daily life, right? I never, I never knew my friends. For example, I had no idea who was Jewish or Catholic or Orthodox. I kind of knew whose grandmother was what because we would go to that person's grandmother's house for the Passover, for you know Easter, or you know 
because we have Orthodox uh, and and Catholics, uh, we have two Easter's and two Christmases, right? They're they're like you know can be either on the same day or a week or two apart uh, on the on the Easter's, uh, and then you know we go to Passovers, we'd go to Ramadans, you know, uh, AIDS <clears throat> like that. There's nobody. It just wasn't a thing. And so many people, like in my family, so many people are intermarried. That, I mean, we learned this after a while, right? But never, it just wasn't a thing. The, the whole nationalist, I'm Serb, you're Bosnia, and you're Croatian. Uh, certainly in Bosnia, and in 90% of the people I visited, and we had family all over Yugoslavia. It just wasn't a thing. Everybody was intermarried. Well, that's what surprises me, is how it could, uh, how it could devolve so quickly. And it makes me think that maybe there was some undercurrent going on. And then once the central government collapsed, that there was just that all of these, you know, the underbelly was exposed. Uh, so it just so why do you think it accelerated so quickly? Well, you had Milosevic there pumping the nationalist story for a very long time. OK. Uh, and he had a counterpart in Croatia, uh, uh, President Tujman, uh, who was doing the same thing, right? And bringing back World War Two kind of Nazi symbols and. Uh, nationalist stories, and this was this has been feeding, but we ignored it, right? We thought this is stupid. These guys are buffoons. They, this, these are idiotic things. Why are we talking about World War II stuff? And you know, how, how are you a victim? Everybody was always being a victim, right? And a lot of what you see today on, on on both sides of the political spectrum, everybody's a victim, and we kind of blew it off and and said, "Come on, that's stupid." But but then the bullets started flying, and the shells started flying, and then it became real very very fast. Uh, that's one of the reasons I was so freaked out over, over January 6th here, you know, uh, we had, you know, the vice president do what he did and we had the military say, no, we're not, we're not taking any part in this, uh, in, 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 uh, Serbia, that didn't happen. Right. When, when January 6th happened in Serbia, uh, basically the military said, we're with Milosevic and we're going to do whatever he tells us to do. And he directed them to fire on the civilians. Uh, in Sarajevo, they, they besieged the city for four years, right? They cut off electricity. Same playbook, right? All the dictators have the same playbook that you see in Ukraine today. Yeah, definitely consolidating power. Once you get the military behind you, then that's when things get real. And that's you right. definitely need the institutions to keep the two separate uh, to, you know, to make sure there's checks and balances, to make sure that, you know, power is divided appropriately. And it sounds like they just didn't have that there no not okay. not at that level yeah. uh and i just you know I, I remember in law school studying i mean i've studied the u.s constitution a couple of times once before i became citizen i didn't know in your citizenship test they give you a sample 100 questions and then the questions they ask you are off of that list of 100 so my mom who barely spoke english scored better than i did because being the proper student i went back and like studied all the documents right i thought there's no, they're never going to give you the answers, right? They're going to ask you something else. So I studied the Constitution pretty seriously then. Uh, and then again, of course, in, 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 you know, in high school and then again in law school. Um, but in law school, uh, having had the experience of the war and, and you know, what's been going on around the world, I went to law school a little later in life. Um, it just comes through how wise that document is and how it's uh, aware of human frailties, it's aware of group psychology. It's aware of, you know, the threat of populism uh, on either side of the political spectrum. Uh, it's pretty fascinating for a document written back then before Twitter and Google and all of that stuff by, by uh, uh, 
that group of folks, you know, there are failures there, right? There are clear issues there that, that, that we're learning about every day and that, you know, that long-term consequences, certainly with respect to women and, and you know, people of color and slavery and Indians and, you know, Native Americans and all of that. Uh, clearly, a lot to be said about that. But as far as setting up a functioning system of government, uh, and if you've studied constitutions anywhere else, you'd see it's, it's actually a brilliant document and, and something that, you know, when people complain about America exporting, uh, it's, it's uh, if you will, political system. Uh, I don't think that's such a bad thing, right? I, I just think it's a well-thought-out system. And, you know, as I trained as an engineer. If you find something that works and it works well and it's been proven over a couple of hundred years, why not? Right. It's not yeah. invented here is not necessary. Yeah. Well, it warms my heart to hear you say that uh, because I know there's a lot of conflict nowadays. And of course, people tend to you know, bristle at the idea of American exporting anything. And we want to, you know, I think a lot of us, some people feel like guilty. And but I do think you're right. I mean, I, I've, I'm, I'm a lawyer as well, just, just like you. I went to law school and and there are some brilliant ideas. Certainly, we have our problems. There's not a single country that doesn't. But the, the the broad ideas in the Constitution, I think the big one, and we, we touched on it just a minute or two ago, is just you can't centralize power. You need to have d- divisions, whether it's horizontally or vertically, like, and you need to have certain rights that are protected. You can't have one executive having too much power. You, just the military by itself. You know, in the U.S., we Congress organizes it, equips it, funds it. The president directs it in certain areas, but he must have permission from Congress to de- declare war. Right. Like just little things like that are huge, are huge. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So, and I think that, you know, there was a lot of attack on the Electoral College and all of this. And of course, that, you know, a losing party always complains about, yeah, uh, yeah. about the system. Sure. But, you know, our system is set up to be deliberative. Now, not that it hasn't descended now into too much partisanship, uh, but I think it's coming back. I just know... From, from my friends who are on, on uh, you know, every side of the spectrum, um, in some weird way, like what happened in Ukraine, I think brought us closer together because we realized this can, you know, this can get out of hand quickly. And, and we almost like, like had, we almost, I don't want to put it this way, but it's almost like a lot of people had the luxury to worry about, you know, being a Republican or being a Democrat, uh, when in fact there, there are people out there who don't mean well uh, to any of us. And, and we really need to band together. And, uh, and rather than, you know, backstabbing on all these little things that we do, we need to, uh, we need to work together. And the unfortunate, you know, thing around COVID that I think it went in excess in, you know, in every direction from, from all sides, uh, you know, unfortunate. And then, of course, what's happening today with the, the debates of, you know, identity politics and culture and, uh, and all of that with the Disney fights and all of this, it's just, I just wished uh, people scored fewer political points and went back to uh, leading, right? The job of leaders, uh, as you've learned, I'm sure, in, the, um, in, in your days as a pilot and <clears throat> generally being in the military and in business, the job of leaders is to lead, not to stoke fires. And, and, and it's about leader really being a servant to the community and figuring out what does this community need, not what do I need. Uh, and lately, I think this uh, individuality, it's everybody's looking to score points and likes and fundraising dollars. Uh, and so few people are focused on what's really going on, not just in our country, but in the world that affects our country directly, right? I mean, you don't pay attention to Ukraine. Next thing you know, your gas is up, right? Inflation is up. This, you know, you got to send weapons. You got to, you know, the guys rattling nuclear weapons. It's, we got to pay attention to these things, right? And then what's the right balance? 
Well, we have the deliberative bodies that we've set up, right, with the House and the Congress and the state governments and, and all of this stuff. We're just not using the tools uh, as well as we could. So I'm, I'm hoping this kind of vitriol on all sides dies down uh, and we focus on how do we build this great country into, you know, what it can be. Because, boy, you certainly don't want to live in the alternative, you know, uh, options that are out there. And, and I read a great article, sorry to get us off the topic, but it talked about in the last Cold War, what was the economic power? Uh, of our enemy in the last Cold War. So Russia was big, bigger than today, but still insignificant in the world economy, sub 10%. And China was non-existent. It wasn't even in the statistics, right, because of the policies of Mao Zedong and the poverty and, 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 and all of that. Today, in a Cold War, we have two very serious adversaries. And it's going to take us, you know, working together uh, a lot smarter, not just because they're enemies, you know, we're the good guys, they're the bad guys. It's just about this whole idea of, of, of freedom. I think people are really thinking about it. And freedom to yell anything you want on Twitter is one thing. Freedom to, like, I was just telling my 11-year-old son yesterday, we went on paintball, and I was explaining to him the concept of freedom. Like, imagine if you couldn't if we couldn't have this conversation that we're having right now, imagine if we had to hide. And at the end of this talk, I had to tell you, don't say this at school, right? Because your friend can tell their mom and then dad can go to jail because I said something bad about Trump or Biden or pick anybody, right? Obama, sure. uh, like that. So this is serious stuff and people take it lightly. And for somebody who's had a country and lost it, uh, I can tell you, this is, we need to really start paying attention and working together and building some of these wisdom concepts, right? Ancient wisdom concepts, of, uh, of humility, of, of taking care of the other, of, you know, other center, centeredness <clears throat> rather than just me, 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 right? Facebook clicks uh, and like that. Yeah, I think this is, and this is a great segue. Uh, you have an interesting background, not only coming from Bosnia, but getting into tech and IP. Eventually, I think you, you did a lot of in investment banking too. Is that correct? I did. I still do. So, yeah. yeah. So business background, tech background. You got a, you're a, you have a you're a lawyer as well, so you have a legal background, so just a ton of different stuff, and now you're doing uh, this wisdom training through uh, through Upend is the name of the organization. Yes, Can you go into why? That seems like a pretty big shift toward you were going one direction, then you took a ninety to the to the left, and, and here here we are with um, with Upend. Can you explain that evolution? Sure. Look, as a kid, I was always interested in kind of how things work, uh, and uh, including humans. And I was always trying to figure out, like, how, why does this work? Why, why, how, and why does this work? So uh, I went uh, to study engineering, and I ended up with a doctorate in electrical engineering. And uh, I ended up working on the brain and figuring out how the brainstem works and the midbrain region. Uh, so part of my doctoral dissertation or my doctoral dissertation was on measuring brain waves that come from deep inside the brain and that are kind of the first fight or flight uh, system. It turns out your ear uh, is connected to what's called the eighth cranial nerve uh, and that eighth cranial nerve goes right into the brainstem at the very bottom of your brain. And within five milliseconds, right, five thousandths of a second, if you hear something, your brain is alert. So it's the fastest system by far that, uh, that we have, right? Faster than smell or touch or sight. Sight is really slow, right? Really? It's, it's the sound. Yeah. Yeah. Cause sight, you have to process. It takes, it takes 300 oh. milliseconds at least. So, so it's 300 for sight and five for hearing. Five milliseconds for the first peak. Uh, so that's like of, that startle uh, reflex. Like people get that startle reflex, 
reflex. Right. And I know babies have that. And it's, it's, you're right. It is like, we hear a loud noise and it's like, you can't even control it. Whereas with eyes, I guess some of us, you, you, know, you throw a ball at us and we can't even catch it or hit in the face. That's the right. You literally yeah. cannot control it because it goes like straight into the autonomic nervous system, Okay, you know, through a part of the brain. So the, the prefrontal cortex later figures out what happened. Right. But I don't know if you have kids, but you know, um, Somebody sent me a video of all of these dads catching kids when they fell down, you know, off of monkey bars or off the chair or off the table and all of this. And, and they're literally like in an instant, I have four kids. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, you, you see the power of that instinct, um, at, at operating, but it's, um, it actually has a lot to do with, you know, how our brains work. Uh, is, is a really interesting thing. And that's what ended up interesting me the most, which is why I spent, you know, my doctorate. I was at the Washington University uh, in St. Louis. So my doctorate was between electrical engineering and the medical school. And I learned a lot about neuroscience. I never trained as a neuroscientist. I, you know, I'm not, um, what do they say? I'm not a real doctor. Uh, there's been some discussion about who's a real doctor. So I'm a doctor of electrical engineering. Uh, and I spent most of my work in neuroscience uh, I then went to Yale to go teach. So I was a professor at Yale for uh, for five years, uh, two of which I did research, and primarily, you know, on the body, right, and primarily neuroscience. And that laid the seeds for some of this uh, uh, work that ended up being the School of Wisdom, which is now um, upend.com, like the word upend, uh, is, is a school of wisdom. And one part of the school is the neuroscience, like how does the brain actually work? Because you can't really cheat neuroscience. Right. You can cheat a lot of other stuff and you can talk about it and you can pretend and you can grin your teeth and you can do, you know, you can you can you can do a lot of different things. But like the basic plumbing and wiring of the brain is what it is. Now, the good news is there's neuroplasticity, so you can change that. Mm. You know, you're not, okay. you know, stuck with the brain you have. That's good. Uh, but this, that's a good thing. Right. Thank God. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and um so that kind of laid laid the roots. So then I went deeper and deeper. So I was at Yale. After I was at Yale, I, I spun out what ended up being three medical device companies, all focused on the brain. Uh, so I built one that did the, uh, the brainstem testing for babies at birth to see if they can hear and if their brains work. And then that company got sold to a Fortune 500. Uh, then I built, with similar technology, I built a consciousness device to tell the depth of consciousness during anesthesia. So measuring the prefrontal cortex and the frontal cortex to figure out if you have too much anesthesia or not enough during surgery. Wow. Uh, and it's brain electrical waves. So it was a completely different part of the brain, works in a completely different way. But inadvertently, I ended up kind of traversing the brain that way. And then the last company, I sold that one also to a Fortune 500. Uh, the last company I built uh, did concussion. And actually, we got a lot of money from... Uh, from the military uh, because of the soldiers that were coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan to try to figure out the difference between concussion and uh, PTSD. Mm. So I measured brain waves to be able to tell the difference. Uh, and that company, I sold it to the investors. Uh, it's now running. It's out there. It's called BrainScope. It has FDA approval. It's a handheld device that measures brain waves. It can tell you if you have a concussion or not. Wow. Wow. You're just, man, you're doing a lot of stuff. So you, you bring up some interesting points about the involuntariness of your of your brain structure and the startle reflex and sound and all that and i heard on a podcast just a, maybe a week or two ago that you could measure the startle reflex in in babies from sound and that that can give indications as to their overall sensitivity psychologically 
And I wonder if that's also related to people's political leanings. Like, is there a brain structure that we can almost predict which way you're going to lean politically or which type of personality <laughs> you're going to have? Like, is it that? Am I going down a rabbit hole here? Or is, is there you some are, connection? You are, I am? Yes. Okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so uh, when uh, John, is it Kerry and Bush and Nader, when they were running uh, uh, in the presidential elections, what year would have that been? That's 2000 something. Uh, um, 04 was Kerry. 04. Yep. That's right. It's the 04. <clears throat> that's the first time when uh, uh, neuroscientists with fMRIs, with these fancy machines, functional MRIs, they can do brain imaging. When they try to put Democrats and Republicans in, in an fMRI machine uh, and figure this out, and they made some correlates. It was loose, uh, but not really. Okay. It, you, you know, you could say maybe that somebody's more open to new ideas. You can maybe detect some parts of the brain because more of the brain gets recruited, uh, whereas other people are more kind of habit-driven. So if you give them a piece of information, they'll immediately say, you know, one or two or A or B or a choice, right, or left or right, whatever it is. And other people more deliberate more on it. So you could kind of find out where the brain structures are that do this. Uh, there's an excellent book by a guy named, uh, I think, Stephen Hall uh, called uh, Wisdom. And it's about a series of these studies of can we pinpoint where wisdom is in the brain? Can we pinpoint where humility is, Where how decisions get made, right? Uh, who's a Republican, who's a Democrat? Uh, really a, a fascinating study, a little dated now, uh, but it's uh, people have been trying to do this for a long time. And thank God, no, uh, you can't reliably predict uh, who's a Republican, who's a Democrat. But more importantly, people are persuadable. Uh, so I'm less interested in politics. I'm more interested in um, how do we get along with each other? How do we how do we make our societies work? How do we make it work for the kids and for the homeless and for people of color and for you know, uh, the, the military and the veterans, you know, I'd spent a lot of time in around the VA. Um, the former head of the Veterans Administration was on my board at the company, General Jim Peake. Uh, so I learned a lot about the soldiers that came back and how little we do for them. Uh, you know, uh, we greet them at the airport and we'll put yellow ribbons everywhere and we do all of that stuff. But when they have real problems, you know, if they don't fit in some diagnostic category, we throw them out on the street. Uh, like that. And that didn't sit well with me because I know what soldiers did in my country right now, how they fought and what they put on the line so that I could have a country back home in Bosnia and, and, uh, and same here. And my interest is more in how do we develop these, uh, or not really develop, but how do we refresh our, our what I call wisdom skills? Uh, and how do we refresh the skills of, of courage, of reciprocity, of giving, of uh, caring, of empathy, of compassion, but also of decision making, right? It's sometimes it's time to step into your warrior, you know, uh, self. Sometimes it's time to step into your lover self, right? Depending on what the situation is, right? Sometimes you got to be the kind of the ch take charge kind of person because, you know, when if the house is on fire, it's not time to talk about, you know, the meaning of life. It's time to get the kids and the dog out of the house, right? Or if you're being shot at or whatever. And, and then other times we have the luxury to, you know, to think about more on the spiritual side. Unfortunately, we've, we've somehow as the churches went down in America and church attendance went down, nothing really came in to replace that. And we kind of lost our daily spiritual refill, if you will. Mm. Now, so many of these religious organizations are, you know, pandering to political parties, as you see around the world, right, in every religion. And, and you know, I'm, I'm sad and upset about that, right? It's, it's, you know, it's the houses of worship that used to remind us 
to take care of our neighbor. They used to remind us to be a bigger woman and a bigger man, right? And, and that we're all made from the same cloth. And, you know, they used to give us those messages. Now, unfortunately, either people don't go or a, a lot, if you look around the world, right, in all these different countries, uh, the source of, of, of a lot of hatred and, and saying you were better than the other guy, uh, you know, or at least the support comes from their religious institutions, the world around in all major, in most major religions. That's a, that's a, a interesting observation. I've, I've, I've said the same thing that it seems religion and politics have, are kind of, they're very closely related. They're very, you know, based on, on belief and faith in many ways. There are certain procedures that you must go through to be a member of the organization to kind of keep, you know, keep, um, keep friendly with people that are, that are there with you. And you're right. Like in the, probably the 1960s around there, we kind of had a decline in religious attendance and religiosity. And I think mainly that was because of people looked at religion as being just judgmental and ignorant in some ways. And so they go, okay, if that's a religion, I don't want to be that. I'm going to go look for something else. But then they embrace something that was sort of religious-like anyway. Like when I look at some of these, I follow some pretty obscure political organizations just to be informed and see what's going on. And I read some of the comments. I'm like, and at first I would get really angry. I'm like, no, that's not true. And this is, they're not looking at this the right way. Or that. But then I, I step back and I go, what if this was just a little mini church? And now I go, oh, okay, I get it. Now I see what they're actually <laughs> trying to do here. I mean, do you think that's kind of what you're seeing as sort of a replacement going on? That's, I mean, that's what I'm seeing. Yeah. You know, people cling to all kinds of different things. Uh, I'm surprised by all these conspiracy theories uh, on left, right, and the center. Yeah. Uh, and all of these panic, you know, uh, panicky moves that are just creating, again, there's no wisdom, right? This is why I started the School of Wisdom. You know, I went to see how the brain works. In parallel, uh, you know, I, I worked with, you know, I ran companies, so I hired a lot of people over the years, and then I, you know, bought and sold companies, my own, you know, and investors and all of that stuff, uh, and then became an investment banker after I sold my uh, third medical device company to help people buy and sell companies. So I work with people every day, and, you know, some are startups and, you know, 20, 30 people, others are very large companies, right? Google is a client and IBM and General Electric and you name it, Sony and, you know, various Chinese companies have been clients, European companies, you know, all, all over the world. And, and I started noticing some trends working with people, both as employees and colleagues, but also as clients and, and, and suppliers. I, I started realizing how people are working against themselves, right? And in business, it's pretty easy because the measure is really easy. It's just money. Yeah. So in relationships, like with your wife or your kids, it's harder because you don't know, like, you know, how do you measure it? There's fighting and there's, you have a house, you have, you have a savings account and you have this, or you don't have this and you have that. So there's, you have all these variables. So it's hard to figure out, like, are you doing a good job? or Are you doing a bad job? You don't know. In business, it's very easy, right? Are you, are you making money? Are you not making money? And time and time again, I see people in that very simplified uh, uh, setting, brilliant people make unwise decisions. So I started getting interested in wisdom about 20 years ago, uh, mostly because I made a series of unwise decisions. And people told me, like, somebody gave me a book. My cousin gave me a book, literally. It, the book is called, How Can Stupid, How Could um, Smart People Be So Stupid? Something like that. By this uh, Professor Sternberg, uh, who was at, uh, um, you know, a series of, you know, strong universities. And, and, 
that in part got me started on researching. And very quickly, I ended up going back because a lot of what you see in wisdom research today, in academic wisdom research, goes back to the Greeks. But if you read really what the Greeks did, it goes back to ancient cultures well before that, and basically the indigenous people. So if you look at the indigenous cultures today that are around the world, right, the hundreds of indigenous cultures from, you know, uh, Aboriginal people in Australia to Africa to anywhere, of course, here in America with uh, indigenous people here. Um, what I started seeing as I studied each one separately over the many years, uh, I started seeing two things. One, great agreement between them, right? So things you learn about in Buddhism or Confucianism or, or, or Shintoism in, you know, in Asia, you find the same thing in Australia, you find the same thing in Africa, you find the same thing in, you know, when, when, when you read, you know, the Greeks or the, you know, some of the Roman emperors or Cicero or anybody like that, right? Seneca, anybody like that. Uh, you read the Native American, you know, uh, the Haudenosaunee uh, Confederacy, where, uh, where, frankly, our constitution in part came from, right? They, they were the first ones that had the idea of a confederacy, and you have delegates, and then you have the states, and you have the, the, the together group and all of that. And, and you know, there's some really strong historical links uh, about the—it's uh, called the Iroquois Confederacy, but Iroquois is, um, is, uh, uh, means rattlesnake in French. Iroquois? Uh, transliteration of that. Like the Indian so tribe? So kind of a derogatory name. I'm sorry, the, did you say the Iroquois means— Iroquois. It means snake? It means rattlesnake. I didn't know that. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Um, and uh, so it's really the Haudenosaunee. So it's it's all of the various tribes, uh, basically the, the five plus one nations. You know, think about Lake Onondaga and kind of in that general, uh, in that general region that had had a running confederacy for many, many hundreds of years. Uh, with strong historical record, and that our founding fathers, several of our founding fathers, spent real time there and mm -hmm. talking to them and learning how our confederacy works uh, and all of that. So I don't know that, you know, 100% of our constitution came from there because it was influenced by the French Republic as well. But, you know, it's th th these influences are there. So what I realized is, first, the indigenous cultures and the ancient cultures, once you strip away kind of the they call it the cosmology, right? Like how do we came to be? And this guy said the earth was created in seven days. And the other one said that, you know, we came from the clouds and the third one came more on the turtle and we're doing this and the other. But if you boil it down to the actual lessons that they're transmitting, what struck me is that the lessons are very, very, very similar, very similar about reciprocity, about taking care of each other, about courage, about honesty, about like that as you go down, about empathy, compassion, altruism, uh, not taking more than you need, uh, like that. And, and then the light bulb went off in my head that it's exactly the same neuroscience that I've been studying and building companies for, you know, 20 plus years. So what, what dawned on me is that basically the, the ancient cultures and indigenous cultures are super keen observers of how humans work. And just in the last 30, 40 years, we have the technology now to image the brain, to measure the brain, the electrical waves, and to measure the chemistry, and to do this, you know, experiments on, on animals and, and, and humans, uh, to where we're, we, we can now build a kind of an independent basis of what is wisdom and how to live a good life uh, from, from neuroscience. And there's a, almost a direct correlate to what's happening in the indigenous cultures. So that's what Append is about, is combining you know, the earth-based wisdoms and the earth-based people's wisdoms, some of those 
were ancient cultures that that died off or extinguished right through colonialism and, and, and other ways others survived through the indigenous peoples today uh, and then there's the academic stream of wisdom the kind of the, the academic piece was first you know put into words by by you know the Socrates and Aristotle and the other Greeks uh, and then and then kind of went away for a long time then came back in the Renaissance then came went away for a while and then in the last 30 40 years there's a serious academic effort to both study wisdom uh, both as as kind of a, a social and psychological phenomenon but also as a neuroscience phenomenon and and it's it's it just is, I think we're at such an exciting time that all of these things are converging all at the same time and I thought you know what rather than having some kind of a philosophical discussion about this let's build a school to teach these skills because we know these skills work. We have 60,000 years of proof that, that these skills work, you know, and, and no matter where you look at King Arthur, you look at such and such tribe in Africa or such and such tribe in South America today or 10,000 years ago. And, and you can clearly draw the distinctions of who did what and who acted wisely and who moved forward and how things worked and all of that. How would you define wisdom? I mean, it seems like I have an idea of what it is. I can probably give you an example of what was a wise decision and what was not, but it seems like it also highly differs on what your values and objectives are. So how do you have a good definition of, of wisdom? Yeah. Okay. Um, I don't know that it's good. Uh, I have, I have my own working definition okay. uh, of wisdom and, and it really goes about uh, it's, it's about the balance uh, between now or later and between me and you and all of us. Um, and if, if I just have those things in my head, when I make a decision, then I'm really likely to make uh, a, a good, wise decision. Maybe it won't look so good in the short term, but it'll look in the long term because I'm balancing between now and later and I'm balancing between what's good for me and what's good for you and what's good for both of us, but also what's good for all of us, right? The entire ecosystem of not just humans, but of, you know, animals and plants and everything else. And we see when we go uh, afoul of, 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 you know, of taking care of the others, it always comes back. It always, whether it's Ukraine, whether it's climate change, whether it's the extinction of species, whether it's, you know, mining in the Amazon that we think it's so far away, it, it, it all comes back to us, which if you, if you read anything in the Bible, the New Testament, the Old Testament, or the Quran, or Bhagavad Gita, or no matter which religious text uh, you go back of the major religions or, or any major uh, tradition, they'll basically tell you the same thing, right? Take, take only what you need, take care of each other, show empathy. Jesus said exactly the same thing as, as, as you know, Confucius and, and, uh, uh, and, and Buddha and so many others, Muhammad and so many others. So it sounds like you're trying to balance, you want a, a decision that will be, that it will have the most positive impact for the longest time. So that's your, your time element that will be positive. Now and later. Yeah. It's so, now and later. So you're not just oh, pushing both. things off to heaven. Okay. It's about balance between now and later. Okay. Right. So and if then I'm, balance between. Right. I would say, so if I'm going to have the dessert you know, so that's thinking about the now, or if I'm going to eat the apple, that's thinking about later, but you're saying you still need to consider both because you could always push off your happiness to where you're never really happy. But if you push it, but yeah. if you do something that's going to make you happier right now, you could die. And then you won't have to, you won't have a long term happiness. 
So you got to be able to consider both. That's sort of the now and later you're talking about. That's right. You know, okay. uh, I live in the ultra woke San Francisco here, but um, <laughs> when we when we laugh about woke people, they live in Marin County, which is just over there. Uh, and there were there were uh, reports a few years ago. I haven't really researched this, but I heard there were reports that there was kale poisoning. The people were just eating so much kale that like they had kale shakes and kale burgers and kale this and kale that. I was like, how about a, you know, in and out burger or whatever, McDonald's or something like that. So it's, so, so it's, it's, it's really the key operative word for me in wisdom is balance, but then knowing what am I balancing? So maybe it's not about the cake versus the apple or cake versus broccoli. Maybe I'm just going to eat a quarter of this cake mm. right now. So, uh, so it's not it's it's not about self denial, right? It's it's not about being stoic because that doesn't work, right? It's really hard to make stoicism work. I mean, stoicism uh, failed, right? At the end of the day, right? As 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 a potential way to run society, Spartans failed, right? They're all tough and you know muscular, and you can do anything and withstand any kind of pain. But over a long period of time, that didn't work. Mm. Right. Uh, so this idea of asceticism and I'm going to, you know, be poor and be be so frugal that I'm denying myself constantly. That kind of runs counter to major uh, religious and uh, uh, spiritual uh, and ancient wisdom teachings. Mm. It's about you. We're entitled to a good life. Now, I'm not entitled to have pizza delivered four times a day and watch Netflix all day long because then I'm going to be entitled to diabetes and, and being, you know, obese and, 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 you know, uh, but also it's not just about me being sick. It's also then I'm also then a burden on my family and I'm also a burden on society. So some, you know, personal responsibility is absolutely critical to this. One of the things, one of the ways we teach it uh, at Append is we have these four ways of being, we call it the warrior, the lover, uh, the mystic, uh, and, and the light heart. And if you, if you look at the indigenous wisdoms and, you know, from time immemorial, they've had some version of these four or five or 10, whatever, uh, in academia, they call them archetypes. Uh, it was, uh, Carl Jung that popularized the archetypes, but like so many other, uh, middle-aged white men, uh, he failed to give credit to, you know, thousands of years of history where this has been mentioned, Mm. uh, like this. So, I don't know why they're ashamed to say, hey, I didn't invent this. I got it over there. Right? Uh, it's, it's perfectly fine. So um, we talk about these four archetypes, and, and we talk about the balance. Like, what do you bring? What's wisdom? Wisdom is knowing how much of what skill to use when. Oh, so good. when your kid comes to you crying because he was being stupid and he climbed on a piece of furniture and fell, is this the time to be the warrior and tell him to toughen up and, and all of this? Or is this the time to give him a hug and be the lover? right and say it's okay honey it'll be okay and then in five minutes you can give him the lecture uh like that that can have a huge impact on Mm. on you know ptsd for example right if you read some of the latest ptsd research it's those it's those first it's that first time period after the traumatic event that can have a huge impact on will the person have ptsd for for long term or not if you read i don't know van der kolk or peter levine or anybody who does anything on ptsd uh, that's that's serious. Mate, uh, uh, Gabor Mate or any of these folks. And I'm not. I'm an engineer, so I, I, I can't speak with authority. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I know from the neuroscience perspective of what I do know, absolutely critical how you deal with uh, with some event at the right time. So it's not about am I going to be a warrior or a lover? Am I going to be like toughen up to my kid, or am I going to be like oh honey, it's okay? It's about 
Am I doing the right thing at the right time in the right amount? Okay. And this can be practiced and learned, right? This is really the key thing in the whole why we put the school together. This is not that hard. It sounds like the, you can throw a lot of academic language around it, but it's actually fairly straightforward. It just takes practicing so that these neural pathways that we have can be slowly modified uh, like that in a direction that works for it works for everybody. Now, to go really deep, though, what if we have a disagreement over the over the objective? Or what if we have a disagreement over just a fundamental question? I'll give an example here since we only have about five, 10 minutes to go. I wish I could keep you on for another hour. I have one right after you. Um, this is fascinating to me. So what about a person who just says, well, let's just give an example. The person who says there is no God and a person who says there is a God, how do you, how do you reconcile a person that says, um, or even here's a better one. What if uh, somebody says there is, you know, my objective is to get into heaven and here's how that's done. And another person says, I don't even believe in heaven. So what do you do about people who have, just have fundamentally different frameworks of viewing the world? You know, how, how, how would you say, you know, whether one's wise and whether one is not at some point, somebody's just got to be wrong. Do you kind of see where I'm going with that? Like what if person, yeah. a person just doesn't believe in God or doesn't believe that there's an afterlife and everything here is just about their personal pleasure and pain? How would you, how, how would you tell them whether they're being wise or not? Uh, well, I wouldn't tell them anything. I would listen okay. to them first. Okay. Right. It's, uh, it's uh, one of the concepts that comes from, uh, from ancient wisdoms is that one of my uh, 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 colleague teachers uh, put really nicely, it's about speaking into the listening that's already there. So that person with that fixed belief already has a way that they hear everything and they filter everything out. So if you really want to, as a wise person, if you're talking to both of these people and you're trying to get them to, you know, to see uh, the merit in each other's point of view uh, and, and to soften up a little bit, it's about listening to them first. So you can really hear what is their listening what is the structure of how do they have their filters built in internally so that whatever you tell them, how is it going to actually end up in their head? Right. It's one thing that you and I share words, uh, but if we share these same words with 10 different people, we'll have 11 different opinions because we're not engaged in conversation. So one of the first things that the, the, the you know, ancient wisdoms teach you is, is to be uh, a good listener, right? to notice. Uh, what's happening. So you notice, so as you're talking to this one person on one end of the spectrum, and notice the other person on the other end of the spectrum, you, you, you probe, you ask questions, you listen, and you're looking for an opening so you can start having a discussion with them. Um, that's the first one. So they really engage, engage in a discussion really through a series of questions more than lecturing them and telling them Aristotle said there's a God or Aristotle said there's no God and therefore there is or there isn't because you're not going to convince anybody on a, on, on a big topic like this. So it's really more about would you be open and would you consider this? And, 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 and part of the problem is we're trying to have a Twitter life where we're trying to convince each other with 140 characters. And that's not what ancient cultures did, right? They, there was a village and there was a fire and, 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 you know, you spend time with the elders and you spend time with the grandma and you spend time with the village elder and, 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 and like that. So we had a lot of lessons in your society, a lot of rituals, a lot of rites of passage, they gave you some, some of these basic concepts. So, for example, if you look at some of the Native American, uh, 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 there's a, a really nice uh, talk that was at a conference called Bioneers here uh, by, by a guy named uh, John Mohawk. Uh, 
Uh, he was a, a scholar and a Native American. And he talked about this uh, very concept. He said, if you went to a Native American tribe and you talk to them about, uh, he passed away a few years ago, so allow me to paraphrase in the best I can. And you talk to them about your religion. They would sit there with keen interest and they would listen to you and they would ask you a bunch of questions and, and all of this. And then at the end of the talk, he said, okay, so now are you going to be Christian? And they said, no, 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 I just, you know, that's, that's a really great story because one of the things that Native Americans learned is that the various tribes had different religions, if you will, different view of the world. And what they were taught is to respect each other's view of the world. So in today's society, it's a little harder because we've been so focused on, on I'm right. I've been taught that I'm right and you've been taught that you're right. And now you put the two of us together and it's going to take some real work to unwind the I'm right. But I'll tell you one thing is if you go back and look at so many different cultures and so many different traditions and so many different religions, they, they, um, the wise women and men in those traditions, they ask themselves these questions. If you read some books, you know, for example, Paul Tillich is, is uh, a philosopher and a theologian, um, a German guy, brilliant, absolutely brilliant mind. And it's, uh, you know, uh, um, he was at the Harvard school for divinity, I think. And he was, he was a preacher and he gave some beautiful sermons and such. Uh, he has a book called uh, On Courage. And, you know, what, what is courage? And in there, to, to listen to him talk about his own doubt of his own faith in God uh, helps answer this question, right? So for a person who's clearly very religious and, and, and a believer and, and has devoted his life, but to have such an open, uh, a direct, honest discussion with himself, and to share it with others uh, gives a, a bit of a pathway, just like the indigenous people do and, and, and other cultures do, gives a bit of a pathway to reconcile these views mm. and say that they can coexist uh, at the same time. So what we need now is more and more people to, to uh, refresh our wisdoms uh, rather than entrench ourselves and say, no, this is my view and this is your view. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, you can always say we can agree to disagree. That's fine. But we can also agree to talk about it, right? And that's where we're trying to start uh, at Upend is, is these kinds of uh, forums to, uh, for people to connect. Well, I think that's a, yeah, that brings up a good point that I, th I think it start with what would allow us both to live together in the same space. What type of system would allow that? You know, could you at least agree to that? And I think just to bring this back around to the beginning of our discussion about the constitution and about some of the founding American documents is that that's at least what they tried to do is they acknowledge that there's a lot of things we don't know what type of government would allow us as many people to live together as possible. And I think they, they essentially found, of course, we disagree on what exactly it says and we're going to fight along the, the margins about certain things. But I think that's one of the reasons why the, you know, America is such a big place. I mean, you have people that live in Florida and people who live in Alaska who are pretty much in the same culture and they live thousands of miles apart and have vastly different interests in their daily lives, but they still want to live together in the same country. And, you know, why is yeah. that? And I think that's, that's the ideas behind the constitution. And broadly speaking, if you were to uh, look at, you know, how to, how do we get along internationally? What would allow the most amount of people to voluntarily live together in peace? You know, and then we can work on the details from there about whether you should eat the apple or eat the cake, you know, like, that's right. <laughs> you know, what would allow that's us right. to get talking? So, um, you know, Doc, I'm, I'm getting a little short on time, but um, any last messages here? And how do we get a hold of you? Sure. So I'm easy to find, uh, upend.com. 
like the word upend, uh, and we called it upend so that uh, it's easy to remember. And it's about upending kind of our automatic ways of being, right? So that we don't automatically fall into our same patterns. How do we how do we change our lives for the better? Very selfishly, like how does my life work better for me? Uh, there's some really great lessons in in, in uh, ancient wisdoms and indigenous wisdoms and, and and modern wisdoms and modern neuroscience. And then how does my life work well for my family? Right, my first circle out uh, because I can, am I being wise in my family? Uh, and then the next circle out, what am I doing with my career and and my work and my community uh, and like that? And then of course, how are we dealing with the earth? Rather than fighting about fossil fuels or not fossil fuels, how about we all agree that this is like a really great place? Uh, whether you That's think good. it's God-given or, or it's a rock spinning around, it doesn't matter. It's a pretty awesome place. We've been to some other places and they're awful. <laughs> yeah. So that's you know, a common point of agreement uh, here. So I would encourage people, you know, obviously come to the website and take a look at what we're doing. We have classes that run every three months. They're really easy and, and, and fun and spontaneous and, and, and super fun. But more importantly than that, just remind yourself of your own wisdoms and, you know, well, what are you doing for others uh, around you? Because that stuff comes back in spades uh, through what we know in ancient wisdom is a concept of reciprocity. So thank you very much. Uh, and in the spirit of reciprocity, let me know how I can support the good work that you're doing uh, and this opportunity that you've uh, afforded me. Oh, well, thank you for, for that. Yes. Yeah, so uh, Dr. Make sure I got the name right. Dr. Elver Kazovich. That's right. Dr. Elver Kasavich, thank you so much. I learned a lot. We could go on for hours. I wish we had a little more time, um, but I will definitely check out the website and follow you. Um, you have an amazing background. Like I said, uh, coming from Bosnia, law prof- or a professor, you know, lawyer, engineer. I mean, it's just, it goes on and on and on. So um, you're a fascinating brain and just a brilliant person. So thanks so much. If you could do for me, I think just sharing, just telling people about the about the show because that's what the show is about. It's about experts and people with unique experiences, and it's about learning and having fun at the same time. So, I you know I have a very curious brain. I think a lot of my audience they're just by nature very curious as well. So it's um it's a fun place where we can come together and talk about some ideas and hopefully solve some problems, and so we can all get along and and um you know keep this keep this wonderful place going that we have. So. <laughs> thank you very much yeah. thank you uh, I'll see if there's any Krivokapic uh, people yeah. in my family tree to see for cousins but I yeah, let me say know. I appreciate you doing uh, this work you're you know, a young guy with a great background you could be doing anything uh, and you're choosing to invest time uh, in, in doing uh, something that's for the greater good and, uh, and my heart goes out to you and, and all the people like this that, that you know uh, have the world as their oyster could do anything they want but they choose to do good in the world. And I appreciate it very much. Thank you. Thanks, doctor. That means a lot to me. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you. That is it, my friends. Thank you for listening. And please remember your five-point checklist from the beginning of the show. That is rate, comment, subscribe, email, and share. So go to the bottom of that podcast app. Give me a five-star rating and friendly comment. Next, go to gregcarino.com. Scroll to the bottom and subscribe to my newsletter. Email your friends and tell them to do the same. Please share the show on social media. So I've got a Greg Carino show page on Instagram and Facebook. And I have uh, my personal page on LinkedIn. So share those shows on social media. And finally, if you want to contact me, if you have an idea for the show, or you just have some feedback, please email me at gregcarinoshow at gmail.com. Take care and see you on the next episode.